You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Welcome to the Fighting for the Faith radio podcast. This is a show that's all about defending the Christian faith. And this includes defending it from attacks from both inside and outside of the church. What? The faith is being attacked from inside the church, you ask? Oh, you bet your bippy it is. And we're here to set the record straight and provide you with the information and biblical analysis that you are probably never going to get on your local Christian radio station. In fact... Think of this program as a Christian form of pirate radio. The thing said here would make your local Christian program manager pull his hair out in the fear that he'd get fired or the station would lose advertisers. So rather than tell you what we're all about, I think we should just show you. So let's jump into our first segment and you can experience the show for yourself. Okay, so our first topic that we're going to cover on our very first show, we're going to be talking about Rob Bell. And since you're listening for the first time, you should probably know that we have a program observer here in the uh, studio with me today, and that is my wife, the lovely Barbara Rosebro. Hello. <laughs> so I'll be doing most of the talking, and she's going to kick me or hit me or say something if it doesn't make any sense. So our very first topic here at Fighting for the Faith is going to be talking about Rob Bell. And specifically, we're going to be looking at the things that he is talking about as in regards to Scripture and its authority. So let's uh, build our case right here, and let's talk about the things that Rob has been saying that I would consider to be very dangerous, to say the least. Uh, these are things that are very alarming. So let's do a little bit of history here. Rob Bell, if you're not familiar, he's uh, the head pastor of Mars Hill Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan, I believe. That's where he's at. And uh, Rob is a very, very popular speaker. He goes on tour quite fre frequently. He's written several books, including Velvet Elvis, uh, Sex God is his other. Velvet Elvis. Yes, Velvet Elvis. It's it's all about repainting Christianity. <laughs> yes, he's he's very relevant, and he's got really cool glasses and and cool hair. He used to be in a, in a band, and uh -huh. uh, yeah, it, yeah. So yeah, and he's also got an organization called Numa, and they do a bunch of videos. And, uh, and so he's really, really popular nowadays. And let's, let's take a look at, uh, some of the things he's saying. Now, if you're not familiar with Brian McLaren, we'll actually get to him in some other, uh, upcoming podcasts and some other programs. But, uh, Brian McLaren, who is an emergent guru to say the least, um, he actually, uh, did an interview with, uh, Rob Bell. And here's what he had to say. And if you want to know, I'll go ahead and put links up on the website. Our website is fightingforthefaith.com. And this is uh, show number one for July 3rd, 2007. So what we'll do is we'll put up links to these articles so that you can kind of see this stuff for yourself. And here's, uh, here's what Rob had to say about uh, Scripture. And so here we go. This is McLaren writing. He says, in fact, as Bell describes it, after launching Mars Hill in 1999, they found themselves increasingly uncomfortable with the church. He's talking here about uh, Rob Bell as well as his wife. And uh, it Quote, life in the church had become so small, Kristen says. This is uh, Bell's wife. It had worked for me for a long time, and then it stopped working. The Bells started questioning their assumptions about the Bible itself. Quote, discovering the Bible as a human product, as Rob puts it, rather than the product of divine fiat, 
The Bible is still the center for us, Rob says, but it's a different kind of center. We want to embrace mystery rather than conquer it. I grew up thinking we'd figured out the Bible, Kristen says, what we knew that we knew what it means. Now I have no idea what most of it means, and yet I feel like life is big again. Like life used to be black and white, and now it's color. Okay. What? Yes, life is big again. They've embraced mystery here, and uh, they've discovered that the Bible is a human product. Now what's interesting here is, is that there's some, been some work out there that connects Rob Bell to a gentleman by the name of Dr. Marcus Borg. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's go back. <laughs> okay. They have figured out that the Bible is inspired by human means, not by God himself. Well, let, let's let's find out what this means a little bit more. Let me help you out here. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I want to know how they came to that conclusion. Well, we'll, we'll get there. This is actually typical liberalism, and, it, and they uh, refer to it as progressive Christianity, as if, you know, not believing scripture to be true is somehow progressive. And so uh, Dr. Marcus Borg, who is uh, a member of the Jesus Seminar, actually says something very similar to Bell in his book called The God We Never Knew. This was published in 1997, and, and Borg was a, a professor at uh, Fuller Theological Seminary, having determined whether or not Borg and uh, Bell actually knew each other, as, and if Bell had actually had him. But uh, Fuller Theological Seminary is known for its form criticism and higher criticism, and they don't really believe the they Bible. Believe to, nothing. Yeah, right, exactly. So uh, here's, here's what we got. Uh, Dr. Marcus Board saying this. The next step in my understanding of the Bible took place in seminary. There I let go of the notion that the Bible is a divine product. I learned that it is a human cultural product, the product of two ancient communities, biblical Israel and early Christianity. As such, it contained their understandings and affirmations, not statements coming directly somewhat or directly some, somewhat directly from God. Progressive Christian. He's a member of the Jesus Seminar. Jesus Seminar, um, actually, uh, that was where they had, they got together to decide which, which passages of scripture were actually authentic to Jesus. And, uh, they voted using beads. And so, um, you know, they basically came up with a Bible where I think just a few things were authentic to Jesus. And of course, the Sermon on the Mount stayed. Jesus's miracles went. Because they don't believe that it's possible for miracles to occur. So what's interesting is, is that there's actually a parallel between what Dr. Marcus Borg says and what Rob Bell says. You know, that it's not a divine product. It's a human cultural product. And um, in Velvet Elvis, Rob Bell actually footnotes Marcus Borg. And so we know that he's familiar with his writings. Let me continue with some more Borg quotes here. This is still from uh, his book, The God We Never Knew. Um as such, the Bible contained their understandings and affirmations, not statements coming directly or somewhat directly from God. The creation stories in the book of Genesis were Israel's stories of creation, not God's stories of creation. I realize that whatever divine revelation and inspiration of the Bible meant, if they mean anything, they did not mean that the Bible was a divine product with divine authority. Okay, so... They like the Bible best if they can take God out of it. Well, no, they they like the Bible best if they can turn it into a bunch of moral stories and how we live. Now, let's take a look deeper into um, into Rob Bell and see what he's now doing with Scripture now that he's discovered that it's a human product rather than a divine product. 
So this is actually taken from uh, the book Velvet Elvis. And uh, let me read a quote here from from, uh, Rob Bell. Here's what he says. What if tomorrow someone digs up definitive proof that Jesus had a real earthly biological father named Larry? The archaeologists find Larry's tomb and do DNA samples and prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the virgin birth was really just a bit of mythologizing. The gospel writers threw in to appeal to the followers of Mithra and the Dionysian religious cults that were hugely popular at the time of Jesus, whose gods had virgins, virgin births. But what if you study the original word virgin and you discover that the word virgin in the Gospel of Matthew actually comes from the book of Isaiah, and then you find out that in the Hebrew language, at that time, the word virgin could mean several things. And what if you discover that the first century being born of a virgin also referred to a child whose mother became pregnant the first time she had intercourse? So what if that spring were seriously questioned? Could a person keep on jumping? Could a person still love God? Could you still be a Christian? Is the way of Jesus still the best possible way to live? Or does the whole thing fall apart? So he's arguing here that uh, it's possible that Christianity is still the best way to live, even if the virgin birth didn't take place. Absolutely not. No, I agree. Absolutely not. So, um, but here's where he says, here's what he says. He continues, but if the whole thing, if, if the whole faith Falls apart, falls apart when we re-examine it and rethink one spring, then it wasn't that strong of a faith in the first place, was it? So what he's basically doing here is driving a wedge between scriptural truth, it's now a human product, and maybe we don't know whether or not Jesus actually had a virgin mother. I mean, that's a miraculous event, despite the fact that uh, that's prophesied in the book of Isaiah. The virgin will be with child. Didn't, didn't Shimka, what's his face? Yeah, this is this is actually very similar to the type of stuff that Shimka Yakubovich, in his Lost Jesus Tomb. Yes, they, they tried this route. It yeah. didn't work. Well, the thing is, is that this is uh, Rob Bell from within Christianity making these claims. Right. Okay. So what's interesting here is that Rob Bell, that's stuff from the past. And recently, we've actually dug up some things that Bell's been talking about recently. And... um. So he actually did a question and answer period not too long ago, and this is published on the web. And uh, the question was thrown to him, what would you attribute to some of the criticisms about Velvet Elvis or Sex God or our view of salvation or heaven and the view that it is here and now in a physical place that we, and a physical place that we go when we die? How does Mars Hill decide what we believe? Now, this is interesting. Okay, Rob Bell doesn't want to get into what the Bible is. Here's what he says. He says, I have no interest in having long, boring discussions about what the Bible is. I would much rather us try to do what it says to do. So he doesn't care what it is. He's more interested in us doing what it says. So the Bible's now reduced to a book of morals and how we live our life. There are certain people who, until you say certain things about the Bible... They want to discuss over and over again what the Bible is, and we'll never keep them happy. I don't think the point of the Bible is to argue endlessly about what it is. I think the point is to study it and then do what it says to do. Well, here's my question for uh, Mr. Bell. Why should I do what it says to do if it's based upon mythology? Exactly. I mean, if Jesus Christ isn't God in human flesh, wasn't born of the Virgin Mary as as the Bible teaches then what authority does the Bible have to tell me anything? And why should I follow that moral system as opposed to the Eightfold Path of Buddhism? 
like I said, they're happy with the Bible if they can take God out of it. You take God out of it, there's no accountability, there's no right or wrong, it's all subjective, it's all what you feel. Yeah, but here's the interesting thing. He says, our job is to invite everybody to trust Jesus, and I will never uh, back down from that. Trust him for what? Well, my question is, is that if, why on earth should I trust Jesus? Why should I trust Jesus if what's written about him isn't true? Exactly. I'm trusting in a mythology. Exactly. I'm trusting in a made-up idea of some ideal person. And what are we trusting in him for, this quote, mythological Jesus that he points out. Well, to show us how to live, we need to do the Bible. See, that's, they want us to be doing it. Okay, but, so he, he dodges the question about what the Bible is, because he's already on the record of saying that it's a human product. Right. But then he wants, he says he wants people to trust in Christ. He wants people to trust in Jesus. Right. And that he'll never back down from that. Sure, it sounds strong. The problem is, is that no, he's given us no reason. Contradictory. Right, he's never given us any reason to trust him. Mm-mm. All right. Getting close to the end of our first segment here. I just want to finish up here talking about what Rob Bell has to say about uh, hell, which was really interesting. But, but he was, hold on, hold on. Why is this dangerous? We're going to get to that in the okay, next segment. We're gonna, good, it, right important. after the break, we're going to talk about why this is really dangerous and what the Bible Perfect. actually teaches. Okay. So uh, in the ooze today, if you're not familiar with the ooze, the ooze is a uh, website uh, that's put together by emerging people. Emergence, emergence, emerging, they're, they all seem the same to me, although they claim there's shades of difference here. They're a bunch of goo. So this is interesting. You recently uh, reached a, a, preached a sermon called God Wants to Save Christians from Hell. I was discussing the message with a guy who, after hearing this message, was a bit disturbed and somehow came to the conclusion that you didn't believe in the literal hell. Let me ask you, do you believe in the literal hell? Is that defined simply as eternal separation from God? So uh, listen, listen to what he says. He says, I don't know why, as a Christian, you would have to make such declarative statements like your friend does when he does he want there to be a literal hell. I'm a bit skeptical of somebody who argues that passionately for a literal hell. Why would you be on that side? Like if you're going to pick causes, if you're literally going to say these are lines in the sand, I've got to know that people are going to burn forever. This is one of the things that you drive a stake in the ground. I don't understand that. So he doesn't answer the question. Instead, he attacks the person who believes in literal, a literal yeah, hell yeah, yeah. and then says he doesn't understand why you would have to drive a stake in the ground. Well, basically, it comes back to either Jesus meant what he said he meant right. regarding hell. Yes. Okay, he talks about people who will spend eternity in hell, cast into the lake of fire, prepared for the, the devil and his demons. So the question comes back to is like, well, all right, he wants us to trust in Jesus, but he doesn't want us to trust Jesus's words about certain things. Right. Like hell. Picking and choosing. Right. And we don't have to necessarily believe that he was born of a virgin. Okay. But we still need to trust in him. But but there's certain things we don't have to. These things are optional. And in his mind, apparently believing in a literal hell is ah, is optional. So with that, we're uh, getting ready to go to the break. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. We'll be right back.
Okay, welcome back to Fighting for the Faith. And uh, we're discussing Rob Bell and his view of Scripture. And uh, we've already been talking about the fact that Rob Bell teaches that Scripture is uh, a human product, not a divine product. He doesn't uh, advocate a literal hell. He uh, leaves open the idea that, uh, hey, maybe Jesus really wasn't born of the Virgin Mary. We uh, connected him to uh, Marcus Borg. And uh, you just kind of took a look at what he's out there teaching. He's not interested in debating what the Bible is. He just wants to get right back, get right to doing it. But uh, the obvious flaw here in his thinking is, is that if he wants us to do it, what authority does the Bible have to tell us to do anything if it's not true? So what we're going to do here is we're going to take a look at Scripture here. And we're going to talk about what would be a right way to view God's Word. How should we uh, be viewing it as Christians? Well... Let's take a look at some Bible verses. Obviously, people, when they talk about God's word, they're going to immediately want to go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And here's what it says. All scripture is breathed out, or God-breathed, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. So the idea here is that scripture says of itself that it is God-breathed, that it is a divine product, not a human product. But, well, that's kind of a... It's it's okay. You can say, okay, well, let's take a look at that, and that's that's a decent way to look at it. But is there a stronger way? Is there a stronger argument that we could put out there for us as Christians to say, you know what? The Bible is divine, and we need to follow it. Well, the answer always falls actually in Jesus Christ himself. And what I like to tell people is this. I refuse to have a lesser view of Scripture than Jesus Christ himself did. Absolutely. because. Who does Jesus claim to be? He actually claims to be God in human flesh. And this is not some mythology. Um, the New Testament documents, actually the Gospels themselves, uh, two of them we know for sure were written by eyewitnesses to the events of Jesus' life. Uh, the uh, Gospel of Mark was the sermon notes of Peter, the Apostle Peter. And Luke, the Gospel of Luke, was uh, compiled by a scholar who went and did interviewing and investigative work and compiled his gospel by interviewing the eyewitnesses. So let's take a look at Jesus' view of Scripture. Okay, So one of the things that liberals try to do is they'll say, well, you don't expect us to really believe that there was a flood, do you? That it covered the whole world. Come on, we're you know this is the 21st century. Give me a break. Or you don't really believe for us to think that... Uh, that Jonah was in the belly of a big fish for three days, do you? I mean, come on. Yeah, that's ridiculous. We know that people inside of a fish can't live for three days. They'd, they'd end up dead. They'd end up as fish food. So um, those are some ideas here. And, you know, forum criticism and uh, higher criticism, we've learned that the Bible is a human product. And Moses, it's really ridiculous for us to think that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. You know, that's just silly. And that's the way they act. Well, let's take a look at what Jesus has to say about these things and what he thought of Scripture. So we read in uh, Luke chapter 17. Here's what Jesus says. This is the red letter stuff. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Well, golly, it sounds like Jesus believes that there was a, a Noah. And that people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. And then Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed everybody. That was Jesus' opinion of Noah. Hmm. All right. 
changing channels here. We'll go to Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, and all the way through 41. And then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so also will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus himself believed in Noah, believed in the flood, believed in the ark, believed that Jonah was in the belly of the whale. In fact, he even said that just as Jonah was in the fish for three days, so will I be dead for three days. So he hinges his own authority to the sign of Jonah. All right, now listen to this regarding the Mosaic, you know, the Pentateuch, as we call it, the first five books of the Bible. Did Moses really write those? Well, let's look at what Jesus says about this. And this is a story from Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 40, about a leper who came to Jesus. And a leper came to Jesus, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and says, I am willing, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See to it that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Well, actually, the Mosaic law has things that are required of people who are healed from skin diseases and rashes and things like that. And so... Jesus is commanding him to go do what the Mosaic law says and attributes authorship to Moses himself. Now, this is interesting. What about Abraham? You know, that, that Abraham guy? Jesus has some funny, pretty interesting things to say about him. Are, are the stories we read about Abraham true? Well, this is Jesus from John chapter 8. Here's what it says. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Jesus is saying, literally here, that his own words are on par with Scripture. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered, well, we are the offspring of Abraham, and we've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you can say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And slaves, and the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father, Jesus said to them. If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing what your father did. They said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. We are one, you know, we have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. And that's an interesting point there. You cannot bear to hear my word. Apparently, Rob Bell has a problem bearing 
to hear God's word, especially as it pertains to a literal hell, especially as it pertains to the virgin birth and the fact that it is a divine product, not a human product. That's exactly why he says it's not divinely inspired. Because he can't he bear... want God in there. He likes all. Jesus the moral giver, the guy who yep. shows us the things to do, the guy who heals the poor and the sick. But he doesn't like Jesus nope. who uh, was born of the Virgin Mary. That's right. All right, let's we continue. Now the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Great question. Jesus said, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, Jesus here is speaking about Abraham as if he knows him, what he was thinking, what he wanted, what his hopes and dreams were. And so the Jews pick up on this and they say, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am using the divine name for himself. So they picked up stones to stone him. Okay. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So here we got Jesus literally believing in the sign of Jonah, believing Jonah's historical person, Abraham's a historical person, that Moses wrote the Pentateuch, that Noah and the flood is real. Talking as if all the stories are real. Exactly. Happens. And then in Luke 24, we find out that Jesus hangs, basically says the entire Old Testament is written about him. That very day, listen to this, this is the road to Emmaus account from Luke 24. That very day, two of them, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing them, him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered, are you only? Are you the only visitor to, Jer to Jerusalem who does not know what things have been happening here these th these days? And he said to them, "What things?" And they said to him, "Well, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel." Yes, and besides all of this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some of our women in our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who had said that Jesus was alive. Now, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And then he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, all of scripture to that point, he interpreted to them all the scriptures and the things concerning himself. So, interesting here. Jesus' view of scripture is that it's about him, it testifies about him, it's authoritative, it's history, it's actual, it's real. So why on earth should I want to be a Jesus follower and do the Bible if the Bible is nothing more than a bunch of myths where I can pick and choose what I want to believe? Rob Bell, you got some problems. I don't agree with your view of scripture, and I think that as a result of it, you are a dangerous teacher, and that people should not be listening to you until you repent and come to a knowledge of the truth that God's word is God's word, and not the product of man. 
All right, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith Radio, and we'll be right back. Okay, welcome back to Fighting for the Faith. Again, you can visit us online at fightingforthefaith.com. I also do some other websites. I do extremetheology.com. There's more of my uh, theological rantings. And if you want to see a website that we do for fun called uh, A Little Leaven, that's a littleleaven.com. Uh, that's a museum of idolatry. That's where we troll f- through the evangelical ghetto and pull up some stuff that's pretty interesting. In this next segment, we're going to talk about Victory Family Church, and I've got a piece for them up at uh, a littleleaven.com. And the question is, does Satan really hate Victory Family Church? Now, why would I ask a question like that? That's actually pretty uh, straightforward, because Victory Family Church got a little bit of media coverage recently, and they did a billboard campaign where Satan is their kind of backhanded spokesman. And so they got billboards all over town in Decatur, Texas, and uh, the billboard says, I hate Victory Family Church, signed Satan. Satan. (laughs) Well, okay, you know, granted, you know, Satan hates the church. He hates the idea that people are going to hear the saving message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How we sinners are going to be forgiven in Christ when he gives us faith and we trust and believe. Satan doesn't want us to know about that. In fact, what's interesting is, is that Donald Gray Barnhouse not too long ago had a, uh, you know, was spoke about what it would look like if Satan took over you know, had taken over a town. And you'd think that, you know, what would happen is everyone would be at the bars, they'd be drinking, there would be brothels, there would be fights, and, you know, just all hell breaking loose. Kind of like, you know, from Back to the Future too. you know, when Biff takes over. You know, it's all, everything goes really bad. And Barnhouse doesn't give the Biff version of it. He actually gives more of the Stepford Wife description. The Stepford Wife description goes, oh, no, 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 no. Every kid would say, yes, ma'am, and yes, sir, and the streets would be perfectly clean. Everyone would have these little white picket fences, and families would be, you know, loving each other, and they'd all go to church. The churches would be full every Sunday where they would hear messages that never mentioned Christ. Yep, that's right. So, yeah. So we asked the question, kind of with that in mind, is uh, does Satan really hate Victory Family Church? And so we went out to their website and we uh, we dug around a little bit, took a look at what they believe and uh, what their vision is and what they preach. And we'll say this, you know, like most churches here in America, they have an orthodox doctrinal statement. But I, I think it's like doctrinal statements. You know, well, we'll go find one that's orthodox. We'll hang it up there and then we'll never preach about it. Exactly. You know, exactly. what's the point of having a doctrinal statement if it doesn't impact what you teach and preach? But what's interesting, they have a brand new vision statement. And let me read to you their vision statement. It says this, Victory. God designed a plan of victorious living for each Christian. Well, really, did he? I mean, what about the Christians who suffer? You know, know, people will hate you because of me and the persecution. Jesus promises us in the word that we will suffer for his name. Oh, yeah. Promise. No, we're going to have victorious living here. So Victory Family Church is all into victorious living, and it says, our mission is to help you find God's perfect plan. Well, now, they're not necessarily talking about God's perfect plan as far as you're a sinner in need of a savior. 
No, it's more like, you know, how to, how to live a great life. And so here's what we find out. Family. At Victory, we believe in helping you achieve a dream family. <laughs> kind of like your dream home. Everything's yeah. perfect. Yeah, everything's perfect. Yeah, this is Stepford stuff here. We realize that goal is impossible if our kids and teens won't go to church, so we're committing to making church a place where your kids will love to be. All right? And then church. God intended for believers to have a place where they could fellowship and learn to overcome life's challenges. Only in America could this kind of preaching survive. Christians aren't supposed to live a defeated, miserable life. God has so much more in store for you. Come see what a difference the right church can make. Well, okay, so we dug a little deeper. This is definitely what I would consider a red flag. And so, you know, you know, they exist to make dream families. Okay, so here, here's uh, some of their recent preaching. Here we go. The authority of a believer. Of the, these are sermon titles. Yeah, sermon titles. Okay. The authority of a believer. Or here we go. The power what? to get well. The authority of the believer. Oh, yeah. We have authority. Over what? Well, you know, uh, bad life. Hats, uh, okay. you know, bad habits. And, All right. You know, bad we career. We have the power to. Yeah. yeah. And then they did a four-week sermon series on the power to get wealth. You know, know, take this sermon series and preach it in the slums of Calcutta. You know, the power to get wealth. Preach this in Defar. You know, give me a break. This is just ridiculous. And here we go, here we go. Living on purpose. (laughs) Not more of that purpose. Oh, yeah. Well, here's the deal. So, does Satan really hate this kind of preaching? Well, according to Donald Gray Barnhouse's description, this is exactly what Satan wants. Okay, we're going to talk about how to make a dream family. We're going to talk about how to overcome life's little challenges and boo-boos. And, and how to get wealth and living on purpose and the authority of the believer. It's all about me, 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 me. Give me a break. So anyway, we put that up. And uh, since putting it up, we've received hate mail. So let's open up our hate mail bag and talk about Victory Family Church. And uh, <coughs> so uh, we got people who are telling us that we are liars, that this is not what they're about, that what we've said is a In dist- other words, they really don't believe what they write. No, and put words don't website. mean anything anymore. No. So it doesn't matter what you say. I mean, you got to understand, you, gotta, you can't judge a person's heart. You know, somebody loves the Lord. You, you, you can't do that. And somebody... <laughs> You know, forget the, just ignore what they're saying. Those are just words. Words can mean anything. I mean, just like Rob Bell. It's Rob Bell's version of the Bible, you know. Uh, we want you to trust in Christ, but you can't, you know, but don't worry about actually believing that he was born of a virgin and, a, and he taught about hell and things like that. But, you know, give me a break. All right. So, uh, <clears throat> so we, we got somebody that we responded back to. That said that we, we didn't know what we were talking about. And here was our point. Jesus commanded us to go and make disciples. He did not say to go and help people achieve dream families. Right. Notice there's a difference here. In Matthew 28, uh, 19 and uh, 20 says this. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. In other words, what I said is God's word. Mm-hmm. Okay? Go and make disciples. He didn't say go and make dream families. All right. Now, this is exactly what the church has been doing since the beginning. In fact, we read in Acts chapter 2 what the church really looked like. Here's what it says about the early church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching 
and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayers. Okay, so this is what it looks like. Apostles teaching, breaking of bread and fellowship and prayers. Okay, going and having dream families is not at all the focus of what the apostles taught. The apostles taught about Christ and him crucified for sinners. In fact, Paul says, we preach Christ and him crucified, which is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Okay, And not only that, pastors, according to scripture, are commanded to preach God's word and sound doctrine and not to how to teach people to overcome life's little challenges. First, uh, 2 Timothy 2.15 Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who need not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Or 2 Timothy I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, correct, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine. That time is here. Yep. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers who will suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Well, I don't know. Isn't a, a dream family a myth? Yes, definitely. Definitely is a myth. I, I don't think this falls under the category of sound doctrine. No. Okay. A dream family is a myth. It's not even one of the things that we're commanded to preach about. Okay. All right, let's see. Oh, yeah. Oh, about dream families. You know, this is that other thing. The reason why we know it's a myth, take a look at this. This is what Jesus says. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, child, and children will rise against their parents and have them put to death, Mm -hmm. and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Well, there goes that overcoming life's little challenges idea and this idea of having a dream family. Truth is, is if you're following Christ, you believe in him for your salvation alone, not your own good works or some other religion, then, you know, you're going to be hated by your own family. So Jesus, trusting in Christ, actually can be a very divisive thing. It can tear families up. So, you know, I don't think that Victory Family Church uh, took this into consideration. I mean, I guess this would fall into the category of defeat, so we don't want to preach about defeat. We want to preach about victory. So, um, now about preaching about life's little challenges, we preach Christ crucified. We talked about that. And then Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. So, uh, the question is, does uh, Satan really hate Victory Family Church? I don't see anything there that Satan would have any problem with. Oh, Satan would love that church. Absolutely. I'm sure he's sitting in the front pew every Sunday. <laughs> Smiling and waving and going, that's oh, right, yeah. you preach about those those dream families, but don't be telling nobody about Jesus and his forgiveness. That's right. Oh, no, we don't want to talk about that. So, well, yeah. All right, we've uh, about beat that one to death. I'm sure we're going to get some more hate mail on that. I can't wait to get it. Uh, yes, I'm judgmental. Yeah, Doesn't the Bible say, judge not, lest you be judged? <laughs> the scripture says to test everything. That's right. Test everything. The Bereans, uh, scripture says, the Bereans were of a more noble character than the Thessalonians because when they received the word of God, they tested it. it you know, they, they tested the gospel of Jesus Christ for what they knew in the Old Testament. So we're told to test everything. Well, and we took the teaching of Victory Family Church and tested it against Scripture. And if you don't agree with us, we'd like you to go ahead and send us an email and send it to talkback at 
fightingforthefaith.com, talk back at fightingforthefaith.com, and show us those scriptures that says the church is supposed to teach people how to have dream families. I want you to show us the doctrine of dream families and show us that that's what the church is supposed to be preaching. And also, show us from scripture where it says that we're to be preaching on how to help people overcome life's little challenges. And get rich. And get rich and get wealthy and all that type of stuff. Go ahead and send those verses to us. And if you can prove your case from God's word, then we'll repent. All right. We'll be right back. Okay. Welcome back to Fighting for the Faith. Our last segment today, we're going to do a critique. If you're out there on the internet and you've been to ExtremeTheology.com or you've spent any time at ChristianResearchNetwork.com, then you'll know that uh, one of my hot buttons happens to be this talk about the church being relevant and the whole seeker-sensitive movement. And there's a website out there, and the name of it is called RelevantChristian.com. And uh, I talk to these guys regularly over the internet, through email, and I've even had a conversation with a few of them over the phone. So in this critique, I want you to understand I'm not challenging their Christianity. I'm challenging their ideas. These guys are claiming that we need to go out there and be relevant to the culture. Well, what exactly does that mean? I mean, they say we need to do it in a way that doesn't compromise the message, but so many churches in the pursuit of being relevant actually sacrifice the truth. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take some sound clips from the second podcast from RelevantChristian.com, and we're going to take some of their ideas to task. And what I thought I would do, let me kind of set this up this way, is... um, A couple weeks ago, I was actually at my new church, which is Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, and they just recently called a new pastor and had him installed. And as part of the uh, the service, uh, the pastors who were installing him in our church were reading passages from God's words, and these are scripture regarding the responsibilities of the office of the ministry. So rather than me just giving my pure opinion. I'll throw in some of my opinion as well, but I think we'll let scripture do the talking. So what we're going to do is we're going to cut to these clips, and this is from the second edition of the Relevant Christian Podcast, and uh, let's hear what they had to say. And this is regarding, um, this cut here is talking about expository preaching and having lots of meat in a service. Believe it or not, these guys are arguing against it. We shouldn't have a lot of meat because we need to be uh, relevant to the, to the culture. So here's what they say. The reason, and this is my opinion, this, the reason why people defend the expository preaching and that you need to have more meat to the stuff you, you send out is because the church has, it started out where you, you had to spoon feed your membership. You would have to teach them everything. And so the reason why sermons got so theologically deep and and meaty and everything is because you know the literacy rates back then I guess were low or something. But it, it there's this this and I grew up in this, is that you have to have lots of meat to your sermon because that's probably the only message they're gonna get the whole week. Nuts. 
he's arguing against expository preaching, and he, and he says, "We, you know, the reason why they did it is because they were illiterate." I want to know how many illiterate people there are today when it comes to scripture. Okay, well, <laughs> there's not. That's Biblical right. illiteracy abounds. It runs rampant. Okay, so he's basically he he, he he's not connecting this idea that expository teaching is something that we're commanded to do, which is really kind of funny. Because, like, let me read this passage of scripture that I already read. This is from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Exactly. Preach the word. Yes. Expository preaching is commanded of pastors. That's this right. is not something we have the freedom and the audio, but this is, doesn't fall into what they call audiophora, where it comes to the freedom of the Christian. Well, my pastor, you know, he's exercising his Christian freedom to not preach the Bible. Instead, we're going to do something more important to be relevant to the culture. That is this, it's as if God's word doesn't have something to say on this matter. I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, Kingdom to preach the word. Right. Okay. It's not, this is optional. Here's another one. Um, listen, listen to this from uh, the Gospel of John. This is Jesus to Peter. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to them, Tend my sheep. He said to them the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything, and you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. What does Christ say? Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God's word is truly food for us. And pastors are instructed to feed God's sheep. God's sheep need to be fed God's word. They need to be given meat. Interesting that they would be arguing against this. Let's go to the next cut and hear what they're all about. What I see in our church, and I've seen in several churches, is that life application is good, and they encourage you to work on your own. They're trying to equip the yeah. membership. Right. And okay. So what they're basically saying is, is we want to be able to do light and fluffy sermons on Sunday in order to be relevant to the culture and then equip people on how to read the Bible for themselves. Well, here's the deal. This whole meal analogy comes into play. I don't know about you. But I don't remember the last day that went by where I didn't have a meal. My wife is an amazing cook, and I eat every day. Equipping people to feed themselves on God's word and be in his word on a daily basis is an important thing. The problem is, is that they're going to do God's word the way you demonstrate it. They're going to follow your example from the pulpit. And so right, let, let's, right. you know, if, if you're teaching from the pulpit, you're showing them how to do it. And so many Bible studies that I've been a part of in small groups, they'll sit there and they'll open up a passage of the Bible and they'll say, what does this verse mean to you? It's the wrong question. That is a, that is a self-centered, narcissistic, and subjective way of reading scripture. And unfortunately, 
pastors are not really teaching their people how to read God's word. So let's find out what example of reading God's word these guys want to give. We attract a lot of people that wouldn't go to a traditional church because because we're a little more accepting of but pretty much anybody who wants to come, we don't care. We don't care who you are, what you look like. We don't care if you have a, a checkbook or you don't have a checkbook. Yeah. Uh, we don't care. We don't care if you're a biker or if you're a banker. Come on. Mm-hmm. Everybody's welcome. Right. You know. But we still try to give them the same, uh, the same life application mm-hmm. uh, that 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 we would give anybody. So from from the biker to the banker, we try to give them the same thing because we all deal with the same stuff. It doesn't matter where we come from. Okay, let me say this. It is important that we reach out to everybody with the gospel. What Jimmy said there regarding reaching out to everybody, doesn't matter if they're a biker or a banker, absolutely is the way we should be reaching out to people. That People's position in life, whether they look scary or all tatted up, have piercings or whatever, should not prevent us from fellowshipping with them and preaching God's word. But notice what he said, that what we preach them is life application. And he'll go on and we'll go. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's Explain where, that. This is where things get kind of go bad with this relevant crowd. Here we go. There's a lot of times in the sermons, and I'm not knocking anybody, but a lot of times in those sermons where we go to service and we do our singing or hoop and hollering or whatever they want to do, and and then they would the guy would preach and he would preach about, uh, whatever, but he would be yelling at you the whole time, mm-hmm. and then everybody left. Mm-hmm. And I thought, man, that was a good service, but then really gave you no application for how to live a better life. <laughs> okay, the preaching of a sermon is not supposed to teach you applications on how to have a better life. How to have a better anything. Right. It's not the, the point. Sermons are supposed to proclaim Christ and Him crucified. They're supposed to preach God's law and it's supposed to rail against your sin. You're supposed to be uncomfortable with it. It's supposed to cover sound doctrine because we are admonished in Scripture. The pastors are admonished to teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. This is from Titus chapter 2. Please understand that this is not something that's optional and life applications is has nothing to do with how the apostles did church in the early days. Let's go to the next cut. And that's what I like about what we try to do mm-hmm. is the fact that we try to say, this is how you, know, you can live a better life. We understand right. they have to have Christ, and we give them that opportunity every time they come. Right. We give them the opportunity to accept Christ. And then and they know that every time they come, they're going to get something that's going to help them live a better life. Right. Christianity is not about living a better life. Again, preach this sermon, preach this type of stuff to people who are being martyred for their faith in Islamic countries. People who are putting their life on the line, being put in prison in communist countries, and tell them that Christianity is all about how to live a better life. They take the gospel and make it, oh yeah, well we preach the gospel to those who are lost. I mean, it's important. I mean, we do it lip service. And, you know, we'll share with them the Christ diver. But we really want people to come in and learn how to live a better life. That's called being relevant. That's not relevancy. That's 
That's completely taking Christ out of Christianity and turning it into some kind of moralistic, therapeutic, self-help thing. I'm sorry, but that's not what Christ came to do. He didn't come to teach us how to live a better life. In fact, he promised suffering and rejection for those who trust in him and who believe in him and who preach him exclusively. Reducing Christianity down to this life application stuff is a distortion of Christianity. And here's the deal. If this is what you're preaching from the pulpit, if this is what you're preaching from the pulpit, then this is exactly how people are going to read their Bibles when they're doing it by themselves. Right. They're never going to be digging out sound doctrine. They're going to have no clue what forensic justification means, imputed righteousness means. They're going to have no idea what it means that Christ died for them. Instead, they're going to start doing these life applications, and, and basically, which is God's law, do this and you will live, and somehow think that they're achieving the victorious Christian life by applying these principles, and the law becomes manageable for them. That's not what's scriptures all about let's go to the next cut being life applicable people are more likely to use that rather than uh, the theological reasons why the trinity is is all and all separate and all together you know it's good to know that yeah but when i go to work on monday morning i'm going to say hmm how can uh the the idea that the trinity is separate and together how can it help me uh, deal with the stress i'm having with this co-worker or <laughs> You know, and, and, and like I said, it's good to have that stuff. It's stuff you need to, you need to, you know, find out. But uh, in the more life applicable sermons, we're encouraging people to use their Bible and use themselves and think for themselves. Mm -hmm. and, and really, you know, isn't that better than having a real meaty service one day a week? You know, you could have meat every day. You know, it'd be like uh, me gouging at the buffet on Sunday and then <laughs> starving the rest of the week. Yeah, you know, um, yeah. <clears throat> I just... Okay, I think I've heard enough of How that. How many times did he use the word themselves in that last cut? Oh, yeah, it was all about themselves. You know, they need to have uh, applications that they can use themselves. And, you know, come on, guys, give me a break, okay? You're poo-pooing doctrine... And maybe it's because you're not taking the time to actually learn it. If you were actually preaching expository t sermons, God's word would dictate what topics you're going to be talking about. And not every piece of scripture lends itself to life application. In fact, very little of it does. Okay, You are told and instructed by God's word to preach God's word and to teach what's in accord with sound doctrine. This is not something that's optional. This is not something you have the ability to put, you know, decide for yourself. This is what God's word commands us to do. This is what we need to be doing. And the fact just because that, you know, some doctrines are not going to be practical tomorrow or Monday when somebody goes to work does not mean that that somehow doesn't apply to them. Here's the deal. Scripture is ultimately relevant because it applies to every one of us. Scripture tells us that each and every one of us stands guilty before God of sinning against his perfect law, and that as a result of it, we have earned from God for our wicked deeds eternal separation, life in hell, pain and suffering for the rest of eternity. But the story doesn't end there. The story continues with the proclamation of the gospel that God became a man in human flesh, came and died for our sins on the cross, and salvation is offered freely through trusting in Jesus Christ. And this is a message that not only needs to be preached 
to unbelievers, it needs to be preached to believers as well. Why? Because believers remain sinful as long as they are still alive. Therefore, they need to continually hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they can learn not to despair in their sins and learn to trust and love and love him for their salvation, not to you know apply things. So what happens is is that this idea that Christianity is all about life applications and living the better life, that is a different gospel. And none of it matters at all. If you do not know that you are forgiven of your sins, then it does not matter if you have a fat checkbook or not. All of it's for naught. The only important thing is who Christ is and what he's done for you. Right. And that's not going to be practical for work tomorrow, nor was it ever designed to be. Okay, this, this assumption that somehow we're supposed to be helping people have, you know, with their challenges at work and their challenges in their family and stuff like that, that is not scriptural. We're supposed to be proclaiming Christ. In fact, if you're not preaching Christ Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, what you're really doing is preaching about yourself. That's right. And scripture says, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, he says, we don't preach ourselves, we preach Christ. That's the problem with this relevant stuff. And uh, the guys at Relevant Christian did a fine job of explaining that to us and giving, gave us the opportunity to show them from Scripture what God's Word says about this. All right, that wraps up our first edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thank you very much for listening. Hope you will tune in next time. We got some more. Uh, we'll be back in a few days with some more stuff. Hopefully we're going to do uh, a radio program on Brian McLaren and some of the stuff that he's been saying lately. So again, thank you for tuning in. God bless you. Until next time, we'll, uh, you take care. All right. Bye-bye.